We're going to talk back in the, the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 4. How many of you, uh, with raising your hands, have ever owned a pair of Adidas shoes? How about Puma? Have you heard of Puma? Fortune magazine posted an article in 2013 entitled The, the Hatred and Bitterness Between Two of the World's Most Popular Brands. And it chronicles the beginning of Adidas and Puma. This is the article, this is what it says. Cain and Abel, Romulus, Remus, Adidas and Puma? The rivalry between two of the most recognizable brands went far beyond mere corporate competition. It was a vicious family feud that not only pitted two brothers against one another, but also divided the inhabitants of their hometown into warring factions and lasted 60 years. In the 1920s, the brothers were partners in the Dassler Brothers Sports Shoe Company, operated out of their mother's laundry room in a small German town. Adolf, Addy, Dassler was quiet, thoughtful craftsman who designed and made shoes, complemented by the older Rudolf, Rudy, who was the extroverted salesman. Although the brothers joined the Nazi party when Hitler seized power in 1933, it didn't stop them getting legendary African-American track star Jesse Owens to wear their shoes as he competed and won four gold medals in the 1936 Olympics. Owens' victory gave the shoes international exposure and sales of the Dastor's product exploded. When Rudy got called up for service, he suspected that Addy and his wife had schemed to get him sent to the front so they could have him out of the way at work. Later, Rudy was arrested for first deserting his post and then by the alleys on suspicion of working for the Gestapo. On both occasions, Rudy was convinced that Addy, his brother, was the one ratting him out, his suspicions confirmed by a report filed by an American investigating officer. While Rudy languished in a prisoner of war camp, Addy built the business selling shoes to American GIs. The conflict escalated as the brothers split the company in two in 1948 dividing the assets and the employees between themselves. Addy named his company Adidas, a combination of his first and last names. Rudy attempted the same by first naming his company Ruda, but eventually changed it to the more athletic-sounding Puma. The two built competing factories on opposite sides of the river and quickly became responsible for much of the town's economy with nearly everyone working for one company or the other. As the entire town got caught up with the Dassler family feud, the rivalry reached ridiculous proportions. There were local businesses that served only Adidas or only Puma people. Dating or marrying across company lines was forbidden. And the town became known as the town of bent necks, since people first looked at which company's shoes you were wearing before they decided to talk to you. While Rudy had the sales staff and was better at moving product, Addy had the technical know-how and better relationships with athletes who could provide exposure, tipping the scales in favor of Adidas, with Puma constantly playing catch-up. However, in focusing so heavily on each other, both the companies were slow to react to the threat of Nike, which would come to dominate the athletic footwear industry, leaving them far behind. But the success created new tensions in the brothers' relationship already strained by the fact that their families lived in the same villa, despite their wives never getting along. There were several incidents that were said to have participated in this conflict, but most widely accepted one took place during World War II when the Allies were bombing their hometown. As Addy and his wife climbed into a bomb shelter already occupied by rooting his wife, he exclaimed the dirty, I'm going to leave it blank because it's not an appropriate word for church, the, the, the dirty blank are back again, referring to the Allied forces. Rudy was convinced the remark was directed at him and his family. A feud, one of the most epic and, well, biblical in business history, was born. It wasn't until 2009 when employees of both companies symbolized the end of six decades of feuding by playing a friendly soccer match. By then, the Dassler brothers had both died, within four years of each other. And even in death, the animosity continued as brothers were buried at opposite ends of the same cemetery, as far away from each other as possible. Conflict. 
as old as Cain and Abel, and it can consume your life. Perhaps you're here today and you think that fighting and quarreling are just a part of life. Perhaps this is what you think normal life is as you grew up in. That's what you do. You grew up in a house where there was constant fighting, and so you think this is normal and common for every home, and I've got news for you. This is not normal, and this is not what God had designed for us. James continues on his mission to root out the troubles that these Jewish, Jewish Christians were suffering from. There obviously was some teachers, some Christians in the church that thought they were wise, and as we looked at last week, James calls them out. If you say you're wise, then your humility will show. You won't have selfish ambition. You won't have bitter jealousy. And there won't be this blatant disorder in the church. And James isn't done. Because their sins from their tongue are present because they don't understand how their hearts work. And James launches into a very practical section here in in chapter 4. Clearly diagnosing their problems. And I'm going to spoil the suspense. Their problems are not out there. They're right here inside. He says to them and to, to us this morning, your biggest problem isn't your spouse. It isn't your boss. It isn't your friends. It isn't your parent. Your biggest problem is you. And we fight with others because we don't have. And we don't have because we don't ask God. And we don't ask God, and then we try to fulfill our desires in anything other than God. And the vicious cycle goes around and around. So this morning, we're going to look at just the first three verses of chapter 4. But I want to read through verse 12 to give you the context of what James is launching into. So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. If you're using a Bible that's in the chairs, it's on page 951. I would encourage you to turn there, either on your electronic device, or as I prefer, an actual Bible. And follow with me as I read. James chapter 4, the big number 4, and then the small number, verse 1 here. We're going to read all, all the way through verse 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks Against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of God, friends. Would you join me in prayer? I encourage you to pray for me, and I'll pray for you. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together as the body of Christ here. And we ask that you would speak to your people this morning through your word. And we ask that you would be their teacher and their their guide to understand this, that they would understand conflict. They would realize that conflict is is deeper than they think. That the cravings in in themselves need to be understood and, and, and denied. You would help them as they confess their their need for you and that you would encourage us to come to you in prayer. Father, help us this morning as we sit under the preaching of your word, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, you should have received a sheet when you came in, and there's some points there to track with me. Three, in fact, this morning. First is conflict is deeper than you think. Conflict is deeper than you think. Second, cravings need to be understood. 
And third, confession will help our prayers. Today's passage is a relevant text for all of us this morning because all of us are familiar with relational conflict, right? None of us are free from sin's presence, although as Christians, we are free from the dominion of sin. And so because we're all still sinning and live around those that still sin, I, I want to prepare you as the church to, 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 to live in this world because you're going to have relational conflict. It's going to come in your future and, and not in your distant future, but in your near future. In fact, just a raise of hands. How many of you ever had conflict with a person? I'll put two up for me. Some of you didn't raise your hands, so. Let me ask you this question. Raise your hand if you've had conflict with someone this week. Anyone this morning? <laughs> conflict is right around the corner. It's not in the distant future. It's, it's right here. And if you're here this morning and you're married or if you desire to be married, you need this sermon. You need to listen carefully to what James says to us because this is marriage 101 right here. In these three verses, just 65 words, there is, there is something here that will revolutionize your marriage. For those of you that are not married and have no desire, desire to be married, don't check out, okay? You need to listen to God's word because you too live around people. You interact with people, you have neighbors, you have family around, and you will still have conflict. And I want to remind you again, this sermon is for all of us, and we need to listen for ourselves. I mentioned this last week, and I think I need to say it again. Um, you need to listen to the sermon for yourself, not for someone else. I heard from a few little birdies last week that a few of you still went away thinking of someone else that needed to hear their sermon more than you. And just so you know, that's Satan working in you. That's not the Spirit. The Spirit of God can handle his job. He doesn't need you. So listen for yourself. Don't waste the sermon on someone else. Listen to the word. Heed what the Spirit has for you this morning, okay? Number one, conflict is deeper than you think. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not that this, that your passions are at war within you. Conflict is a result of pursuing worldly wisdom, as he says in chapter 3 that we looked at last week. We, when we live in this world, we have the desire, the, the, the temptation, really, to follow the world's wisdom. And he said, when this happens, we will have quarrels, which means a, a battle or contention. And we'll have fights to disputes with others. And, and James asked the question, because he's a good and faithful pastor, what causes these fights? What causes these contentions and battles in your, in your family, in your church, in your neighborhoods? And that's a great question, James. I can't wait to tell you what the cause is, James. Right? Go ahead and ask a normal person on the street this week, a coworker, better yet, and, and ask them, or ask two kids when they're fighting, Okay? What is the cause of this fight? What do you think their answer is going to be? It's their fault. Right? It's them. Or it's, it's this situation that I'm in. Or it's this trouble. It's her sickness. Or it's this trial. Fill in the blank. And people always have an answer to this question. When I sit down with a couple from marriage counseling and I ask this question, so why are you here today? Is there a conflict in their marriage? And they both said, yes. And I normally ask, well, why do you think there's a conflict? And you know what the answer will be nine times out of ten? It's them. If I were a betting man and I'm not, I would be incredibly rich. If I bet on every time I sat down with a couple for conflict counseling. Why is that? Because our inner lawyer, lawyer rises up to defend ourselves and we need to point the finger at someone else. For once, I'd love to sit down in marriage counseling an appointment and for a spouse to say, it's me. I'm the issue. And the other spouse to respond, no, it's me. I'm the issue. And then a dispute arises because they're battling of who really is at fault. They want it. But that's not what happens as humans. No, we, 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 we deflect and we minimize our role in conflict when we're in it. 
We deflect, we minimize us, and we want to maximize the role of other people and minimize our role. And we use morally neutral generalities to describe things when we're in conflict. We say things like this. We just don't get along. We're wired differently. Our personalities clash. We're just not a good fit. But see, James won't allow us to have these generalities in the midst of our conflicts. He won't let us off the hook. He asks these questions because we need to examine our conflict more closely and carefully. And as we examine it, James tells us that our conflict is deeper than you think. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your conflict is deeper than you think. It isn't just someone else. It isn't just a circumstance. It's you. James doesn't allow us to blame everyone else. He points the figure back at ourselves. He uses these pronouns throughout the, the verses. Your passions, you desire, you covet. He shows us what's inside of each of us. These passions and desires. It's these passions. This is a Greek word um, from the word hedonism. Pleasures. It's almost always associated with sexual sin in our world, but it, it simply means pleasure. These, these pleasures, these passions are, are not happily satisfied inside of us. No, he says, they're at war within you. And because they're not realized the way that you want, you fight. Do you realize this, friends? There is a war going on inside of you when you engage in conflicts with other people. You know, the language that James uses here in this verse doesn't soften as he goes along. No, it strengthens. They battle and fight because there's a war going on. You see, quarrels and fights reveal something. They reveal sin. Not just sin against just another human being, but ultimately sin against God. You ultimately sin against God first and foremost. And you will never be able to deal with quarrels and fights unless you understand the severity of it. You have to understand it's deeper than you think. This is, how you, is this how you think of conflict? Think back this morning on your last conflict. Have you possibly minimized your involvement with it? Have you possibly minimized the significance of it? You realize that if you participated in it, it's deeper than you think? If you don't realize that it's deeper than you think, you will most definitely minimize it. And you will ultimately hold someone else responsible for the conflict and not yourself. Because you desire to walk away innocent. Go back in your mind and recall the last conflict you had. What happened? Why did it take place? Is there a conflict that keeps recurring? Why is that? What's going on in that conflict? Is your life filled with interpersonal conflicts, especially with believers? Are you known for causing conflict with those that spend time around you? How often do you have quarrels and fights? Is this a daily thing? Is this a weekly thing? See, friends, these are necessary questions to ask yourself. You need to begin to understand yourself and how you work with other people. And James tells you this morning internal conflict, the war within you will lead to an external conflict, quarrels and fights. And as believers, we shouldn't look to minimize our involvement in conflict. We, we might even make a confession in the midst of conflict without taking the time to understand our part in the conflict. And if that happens, our confession will most likely not be accurate. It will be inconsistent. It will be weak. And possibly, it will be insincere. Why? Because quick confessions without doing the hard work of understanding our role in conflict can minimize the conflict because we just want to move on. Have you ever said that in the midst of a conflict? I just want to move on. Really, what we're saying is that we want to minimize our contribution to the conflict at hand. We want to point the finger to someone else. We want to say, I'm really not that bad. Or doesn't everyone else have the same issue? And those are sinful tendencies that reside in all of our souls. 
to just move on? Why can't we just move on? And we, we concede the general sin and offer a non-specific confession because we just want to move on. We just want to minimize our part in the conflict. But here in James chapter four, verses one through three, he does not let us. We have to realize how deep the conflict goes. I would love to stand before you, church, as your pastor and tell you that I've confessed well to those sins that are brought to my attention. But I'd be lying to you and to God and myself. I need that time to reflect in my heart. I need time to see and understand my sin before I confess. Pride still lingers in my heart, and so I need my daily time in the Word. I need daily prayer, spending time before God in Psalm 139, asking God to show me, to search my heart, to search out all the wicked ways. I need this. And sometimes I need to postpone my confessions so that I can understand my heart better. And I want to be a pastor, a husband, and a father who is faithful in my confessions of sin. And the only way to do that is to understand that my conflicts are deeper than I think. And friends, the same is for you. As we transition to the second point, some of you may say or have said in the past that maybe what we need in the church is to go back. And you know, the modern church really needs to re return to the, the purity and simplicity of the early church. Oh, really? James says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You guys want to go back to that? That sound good to anyone? James says our conflicts are deeper than we think. There's plenty of issues that happen in the early church. And he's bold here of what he's communicating to, to them and to us. So first, we need to understand that conflict is deeper than we think. Second, cravings need to be understood. You know, one of the joys of ministry is when you're able to sit down with someone and be able to turn on the light, so to say, on another person's dark room. And that happens in discipleship. People usually don't see their desires for power, for control, or for peace as evil. And their souls are, are cured of their ignorance and self-deceit when the light of God's word shines into dark areas into their life. And when they are comforted with the love and, and understand afresh and anew the substitutionary blood of Jesus Christ that purchased salvation for them. And this passage is one of those passages that does that. I have sat in front of couples over the years who initially struggled to understand why they continually have struggle and conflicts in their marriage. And they're locked into hostility and they're crippled with the accompanying fear and self-pity and hurt and self-righteousness. But then this passage in particular shines light in their hearts and it shows them their cravings. And it teaches us that cravings underlie conflict. Cravings underlie conflict. Why do you fight? It's not because of your wife or husband. It's not because of your boss. It's not because of this person or that thing. It's because of something about you. And we need to understand what, it, what rules us. We need to understand our cravings. Our cravings for affection. Our cravings for attention. Our cravings for power and vindication and control and comfort our cravings for a hassle-free life. Those are the reasons why we enter into conflict. And James is telling us this morning, your cravings need to be understood. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So we need, we need to go deeper and see the root issue. The source of conflict is within you, as James says. The issues that your passions are at war. You desire and you covet. All these are sinful cravings. All of these are found within all of us. See, conflicts don't create. Conflicts reveal. They reveal sinful cravings. And to be honest... I don't know about you, we don't like this conversation. You can see it in some of your faces. You're ready to go. I'm not done yet, so buckle up. 
I don't like it either. My flesh pushes against this. I said to a few people, you you have to sit and listen, but I have to get up and preach when I know myself. None of us like this, but James knows this, and that's why he says, he says these things to us. We need to hear this. He says, you desire do not have, so you murder. Murder? James, was murder really happening in the churches that James is writing to? Well, we don't really know, okay? A lot of commentaries argue about this. I would assume there, much been, there would have been much more stronger language. He would have circled back upon it. I'm sure murder was happening, maybe not specifically here. But the, the language here doesn't really say that actual murder was happening in the church. So what is he saying? Well, he's using exaggerated statements to reveal his point. Just like in the Sermon on the Mount, of which James gets a whole lot from, by the way. He knew Jesus really well. Hating someone is still liable for judgment. It's as if you murdered them. The logical outworking of envying and coveting is to kill someone with your words and your thoughts. It's the same emotion in your soul. Denigrating someone else, you're you're taking someone who's made in the image of God and you're using them in your mind however you please and tearing them down for your pleasure. And friends, it's sin. It's assassinating the character of another person. You see a frustrated desire that can lead to murder, to hate someone, to destroy them with your words or your thoughts. But not only that, we can covet and we cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Why do we fight and quarrel? Because we're not getting what we want. We're not getting what we want, so we fight. We battle. You know, covet here is, is closely matched to murder. You have bitter jealousy, so you fight for you want what you want. In every conflict, there's an underlying craving. There's something underneath, always. You didn't get what you want, so you assassinate them. You didn't get what you think you deserve, so you fight and you quarrel. And you have desires inside of you, and when they're not realized, you respond. All of us. None of us are exempt from this. We all have desires, and conflict comes when those desires, those selfish desires are not being met. When we have the selfish desire for status and recognition, and it doesn't come, we lash out in anger. We show it with not being content where we are. Don't they realize how much I've done? Don't they understand what I'm doing? How crucial I am? When we have the selfish desire to get even with someone who has hurt us, we devise plans to bring about revenge. For some, it means concocting these plans in our minds for weeks and months and years, consuming our thoughts and hatred towards them, even praying for their downfall and saying they've hurt us so deeply They took something from us that I'll never get back. And we have selfish desire to protect ourselves from pain and criticism, so we pull back. We don't commit to anything then. It hurt me once, and I won't allow it to happen again. I'm going to put the shields up. I'm going to block them from ever hurting me again. And in each of those scenarios, and there are many more, I'm sure, There's a sinful craving underlying that conflict. And I'd surmise that conflict comes at us at times that we're not expecting even. Sometimes coming right out of the blue, we think, because we thought everything was going so smoothly. But then we come home one night and things seem to spiral out of control so quickly in a matter of minutes. We come home just wanting to relax with our family, but then an argument breaks out and and all we wanted to do is relax, and now World War III is on the brink. All from what we, we, can't, we can't recall. Some examples that I've heard, some, some I've heard in counseling situations, dinner wasn't ready when you got home. Or the appliance wasn't fixed when you agreed it would be fixed. Or the schedule wasn't communicated, and now no one knows what's happening this weekend. All issues are small, but now they're huge. Why? Because there are cravings at war within every person in that situation, and they come racing through our mouth. And friends, I stand before you this morning as a pastor, but I also stand before you as a broken man. 
realizing that I don't always respond well in the context of my own home. And I suspect I'm not the only one. Unfortunately, too many of us don't view our home as a context to serve other people. No, we view our homes as a refuge to relax. We view our homes as a context of deserving service for us. They are there in the home to serve my wants. They are there to serve my needs. They are there to serve my goals. And when they don't satisfy my cravings, we respond with fights and quarrels. But that's not the point of the home. It isn't there to serve all of my wants and needs. And not just the home, but the church. Remember, James is writing this to the churches that are dispersed. This was evident in those churches. And unfortunately, it's been evident in our church. When something doesn't happen at church the way that we think it should, when it doesn't satisfy my wants, my needs, my goals, I'm going to lash out. I'm going to let the elders know. I'm going to let those pastors know. They need to hear this. That's not the point of the church. The church isn't here to serve all of my wildest dreams. We're here to serve God. So what's the answer? We, how, how do we deal with the problem? I like to have clear answers. Do you? Do you ever have the issue in your car when you're driving and all of a sudden the dreaded light comes on? Right? You know what I'm talking about? Check engine. 16 years old, my car, check engine came on, I pulled over. You know what I did? Checked the engine. Still there. Light's still on. I go to the manual. What does it say? Go to a dealer. Great. Unhelpful. Completely unhelpful. But the Bible, see, the Bible doesn't just say, you have a problem. Good luck. The Bible doesn't work that way. The Bible says you have a problem, and here's the fix. Here's the answer. Don't, don't fight and quarrel with people. No, you need to pray about it. We need to clarify our cravings. We need to understand them because it impacts our prayers. But beware, our prayers need to be refined and need to be in line with God's will. That leads to the third and final point. Confession will help our prayers. It says at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James is stating that their conflicts are rooted in one of two ways. Either they are not praying or they are praying by asking God for the wrong things. First, these are genuine Christians who have failed the obvious. They have failed to pray. They have failed to do what Jesus said to do in Matthew 7. They are fighting instead of praying. They are demanding from others what only God can provide for them. That is their issue. It isn't another person. It isn't a hard situation. It's that they don't pray. They look to another human being to get what they can only get from God. And how sad is this? People fighting for recognition. They are fighting for worth when only God can give them that. And they've drifted away from the relationship with God. They have drifted from their communion with God as well that we'll see in, in this chapter. They've fallen away from their connection with God and they become friends with the world, James says. And ultimately, they have forgotten the generosity of God, right? James reminds them and us in chapter 1 that they have forgotten that God is the only one who brings good gifts. James 1.16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation and no shadow due to change. Listen, friends. Persistent. Unresolved conflict often reveals that we have lost sight of the gracious goodness of our God. It is extremely hard to be upset 
and to fight with other people when you are enthralled with the goodness of God. This discontentment in life keeps rearing its ugly head because we walk away from the word and we walk away from God and we forget all that he's done for us. All that he's doing for us. All that he's promised to do. And we fight. Prayerlessness is a sign that someone is trying to run things in their own strength, for their own sake, and under their own authority. Prayerlessness arises from a sense of independence from God. God, I don't need you. I don't need to pray. I don't need to talk with you. So instead of praying about the desires, you indulge them. And it shouldn't be this way. But for those that protest and respond by saying that they did in fact pray to God, secondly, James has a response for them. Their requests to God were not answered. Why? Because their motives for praying were to satisfy their own selfish desires. And God, now listen, God graciously doesn't answer those types of prayers. I heard one amen. Praise God. That should be your answer. Praise God that he doesn't answer selfish desires. It is grace that God doesn't answer those prayers. Because the purpose of prayer is for us to align ourselves with God. Not the other way around. Prayer isn't about us telling God what he needs to give us. Prayer isn't about us getting all of our physical needs met. Prayer, prayer is about us getting more of God and becoming in line with God and, and his will for us in this world. How are your motives when you pray? Maybe you need to pause and, and check your heart motives before. Be a great benefit to you. And so their, their fights and their quarrels are there in, in, as an insight of their lives and the deficiency of their prayer life. Either they don't pray or they're praying wrongly. This isn't the only reason for unanswered prayers, but it's one answer. This very well may be the reason God doesn't answer your prayers. Because all that God does and all the prayers that God answers is ultimately for his glory. So everything we should ask of him should line up with his glory. See, self-centered Christians pray just like they live for themselves. And God will not answer a prayer that aims no higher than themselves. There are many prayers that I have prayed over the course of my life that as I look back were self-centered. They were for my glory and for my good and not God's glory and I'm thankful this morning. I stand before you, friends, thankful this morning that God is sovereign and not sentimental when it comes to my prayers. God is sovereign. He will only answer those prayers that line up with his will. And sometimes our prayers we have offered and, and no separation from our wicked motivations to pride and to, to greed and to lust and other things and friends, God is not a vending machine who dispenses anything we desire. And when we don't know how to pray, Paul encourages us. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He prays according to the will of God. Praise God that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf to pray towards the will of God and not the will of Jeff. Jesus commands us to pray in Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find it. Knock and it will be opened to you. And there's just a chapter earlier in Matthew 6. He explains how. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think that they are heard for many words. 
Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and who is the focus of that prayer? Is it us? It's not us, it's God. And we should pray the Bible. If you don't know what to pray, open your Bible. Pray God's word. We glorify him. We, we pray so his name will be glorified. We pray for his rule and reign. We pray for his will to be done. And as we come along to ourselves and the needs of ourselves and others, we pray in as long as it glorifies God. He is the focus. This is what we desire to model for you in this church. Right before the offering, if you've noticed in the pastoral prayer, in that prayer, we want to model it for you. Our prayer is so that God would be glorified and that we can come to him in need. We can go to God with these needs and for the purpose of his glory. And so this morning, and if you ever want, I'll print it out and you can have it. I write out my prayers. I spent an hour and a half this week writing out my pastoral prayer for you and for God. And we prayed for a local church, Summit View Christian Fellowship in Tacoma. Friends, we're not in competition with churches. We are here to glorify God. Matthew 16 doesn't say, I will build Edgewood Bible Church. Doesn't say that. It says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So if Summit View grows, if they experience a tremendous blessing, and we don't, we get smaller, we struggle, guess what? God is still glorified. Praise God. I also prayed for our church family. I prayed second, our first Peter 2, 9 and 10, that we would be reminded of who we are. I prayed for specific needs in our church. And so I want to hear. I want to hear as a pastor what's going on in your life. I pray for you, church, every week. I send letters occasionally to let you know I'm praying for you. But I have one caveat. You know, one thing they didn't tell me in seminary is that I would learn more about people's physical needs, their medical conditions, more than their spiritual needs, their spiritual conditions. They didn't tell me that. And it's not that I'm trying to say we shouldn't ever share physical needs. But I'll be honest, those are hard to pray for, honestly. They're hard to decipher. When James says we pray and ask wrongly, I believe he could have in mind that sometimes we focus too much on the physical needs instead of the spiritual needs. See, we know from the Bible, I know for certain that God wants us to trust him. And we need to pray for that. I need to pray for you that you would trust God. But sometimes God brings or allows suffering to come into our life so that you would trust him. And so to pray that God would remove the suffering would be against God's will. Because it's an avenue in which God is using to strengthen your trust in him. And so we need to be discerning when we ask for prayer. We need to think through, what are some spiritual needs that I have that I can be praying for and I can ask others to join with me to pray about? See, we don't like that, right? In the church, we don't like that anywhere, right? We want to keep the shields up. Like we've got everything figured out. I don't have everything figured out. If you guys are expecting that from your pastor, I can resign this afternoon. You can look for another guy. I don't have everything figured out. You can pray for me that I can have wisdom in areas to know to be a, a good godly husband, a good godly father, that I would repent well in front of my kids. And you can go to your fellow church members and say, I need prayers for this. Not, not to say the physical needs aren't important, but to say spiritually, this is what I need help with. Our prayers should be evaluated. What are you praying for? Does it line up with the will of God? Do I harbor a desire that is so far outside God's revealed will that I'm ashamed to even mention it to him through prayer? These, these statements by James here are there to humble us, to cause us to, to reflect on our prayers. Or do you turn to God in prayer so that he will rubber stamp your agenda for your life. Rather than humbling and submitting yourself to the will 
of God for your life. Think about your prayers. Do they line up with God's word? Or do you not pray at all? Instead, you fight and quarrel when you don't get what you want. You know, as I close this morning, I want you to imagine with me. I want you to think through God the Father observing your conflict from heaven. He sees it all. He can hear all of it. He even understands fully all the emotions brewing in your heart. And imagine him seeing this play out and you searching to satisfy your cravings for peace or for contentment or for love that you're not getting from other humans. And now imagine the father grieving. Why? Why won't you just come to me? Why can't you stop fighting for these things with people that they can't give to you? Why don't you come to me? I can do these things. I will be your peace. I will be your contentment. I will give you the love that you so desperately need for your life. I can do that. James says you do not have because you do not ask. Why don't you ask me? Ask me. I'm a good father. I'm a giver of all good things. I'm a generous father. I delight in giving every good gift. I love doing that. I'm your father. I love giving good gifts. I never tire of it. I never grow weary of hearing from you and answering you. Why don't you ask me? You need to stop fighting. You have to stop quarreling and waging war within yourself and you need to come to me. You have to ask me. And friends, this invitation to come to God and to ask is only for those that have already come to God and humbly asked for their most serious conflict to be resolved. If you have never come to God seeking salvation for your sins, then you're still in conflict with the God of the universe that is bigger and more serious than any of your hardest conflicts on earth. And you first need to humble yourselves before this gracious God and recognize your need of saving. If you're not a Christian here this morning, your greatest need isn't to have all of your earthly conflicts resolved. Your, your, your greatest need is to have the internal conflict resolved. And that conflict has been paid by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for your sins on the cross. We can only come to God in prayer for the needs of our life because Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross. And because he has come and because he has bore our sin on the cross, we can come to the Father in prayer. We can come. All who, are, who labor and heavy laden, he promises to give us rest. We can take his yoke upon ourselves and learn from him. And he is gentle and lowly in heart and we will find rest for our souls. Friends, his, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And this only comes because of the cross of Jesus Christ. This only comes to Christians who have forsaken, turned from the world to live instead for the world to come. And so when we come to this invitation in James chapter 4, we come through the hill of Golgotha, recognizing that Jesus has died for us so that we can come to God when conflict arises in our hearts and we can come to him to be our satisfaction and all of life. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne as broken people, recognizing every single one of us, I'm sure that there is conflict that's happened in our lives this week. 
And God, I ask that you would help us. It would reveal to us sin that we're overlooking or sin that we're trying to, to deny, to push aside. And they would confess it to you, God. God, you promised us in your word that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Help us to come to you this week, God, today. And as we leave this place, knowing that full well, we might face a conflict even in the car ride home. And I pray that you would work in those moments. That we would pause that we would hold back our tongue. That we would look deep within our hearts and see the, the cravings that are underlying that conflict. What, what are we desiring? And if it's outside of your will, God, that we would confess it as sin. And if we need to confess it to one another that we're in conflict, God, I pray that we would do that. God, I pray for the marriages here this morning. And God, I know there are some here that have been rocky for some time. I pray that they would spend time this afternoon, that they would lay aside every other thing and spend time in the word, diagnosing their heart, spending time with you, God, that you would speak through them, that they would go into James 4 and Psalm 139 and ask you to reveal in them Sin that's been buried. It's been passed over even and forgotten. They would confess it to you and confess it to one another. I pray for those that are here this morning that have conflict in their families, conflict in their friendships or their workplaces. God, I pray that you would give them wisdom. You promise to do this, God, when we come to you. Give them patience and understanding and how to deal with the conflict in the midst of. And if there's sin for them to confess, God, that you would bring that to them to understand that and confess it. God, we're broken people. And we recognize and remind ourselves yet again that we need you. Help us, God. Help us to live faithful to your word and to you. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.